Lord, we, as, we ask for your help this morning as we continue our time through 2 Samuel. Lord, we have seen how you have raised up a king, a man after your own heart, Lord, a man chosen by you to be that king. And Lord, all the details of that have been so amazing. Your providence has been on every page. Your, your wisdom, your counsel, the Lord, has been revealed to us. And Lord, we ask this morning as we continue that you would allow us to see the, the beauty of what it means to worship you, that we would grow and we would learn, Lord, the importance of that facet of our lives, that you would allow me as your messenger simply to reflect your truth in the preaching of your word, and that those that are here would be humble before you, Lord, would be desiring, Lord, to grow and to be challenged by you, and Lord, that you would be glorified through our time together this morning. Lord, we need your help. We are desperate for your guidance. Now teach us, grow us, and shape us, and convict us, Lord, for your glory. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As has already been mentioned, today is traditionally called Palm Sunday, the day set aside to remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as king, riding on a donkey, with the people waving palm branches, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. But approximately a thousand years before that event, the newly established King David is also on his way to Jerusalem, surrounded by over 30,000 people who are singing praises to God. Because on that day, they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Sadly, this first attempt, which is, will be our focus today, will be a failure. And when we return after our Easter services in two weeks, we will see David finally being successful in bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, but not without some problems. This is a text, friends, about worshiping God. It is a text about how we approach God. It is saying to us, seeking to worship God properly or according to his will must be taken seriously. We cannot and we must not be casual or cavalier or dismissive in how we come to worship God. So we could put it this way. This text is screaming at us that we must take God seriously in our worship. And to do that, we must remember who it is that we are worshiping. We must recognize that Jesus Christ is God. In the book of Colossians, Paul puts it this way. In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Christ, the whole fullness of his deity dwells bodily. He is the one through whom, for whom, and in whom 
Paul says, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And you can read all that in chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. So Jesus is God, but Jesus is also our Savior. This is what he came to do. By his death on the cross, God has reconciled us to our maker and defeated all alienation, hostility, and evil in the whole of creation. Again, that's right from Colossians chapter 1. His resurrection was the beginning of the future that God had promised. Again, from the book of Colossians chapter 1. Friends, this is who he is, and this is what he has done, and nothing is more important than his person and his work. You see, we worship Jesus Christ. We gather to celebrate who he is, and we gather to praise him for what he has done. And so to that end, we must remember a number of things. We must remember that he is not answerable to us. We are answerable to him. That he is not obligated to us, but we are obligated to him. He does not exist to do our will. We exist to do his will. His purpose is not to seek to please us, but he has created us with a purpose to seek to please him. There is no reason whatsoever that he should agree with our our ideas of right and good But we need to seek forgiveness for failing to agree with his revelation of what is right and good. And friends, that's how it should be. God is above us. He condescends to be present with us. But he is still God. And 2 Samuel 6 is all about God's presence with us and our worship of him when he is present with us. So first of all, I want you to notice God's, or the centrality of God's presence. Let's begin in verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now let's get a picture of what is going on here. David, having become the king of Israel, uniting the two tribes together as one, travels with 30,000 men of Israel to fetch the ark of God. It's about a 10-mile journey from where he was in Jerusalem. Now, why are there so many people going with him to this place to get the ark? It wasn't because he needed that many people to get the ark. David was making a bold and important statement. The ark of God, the ark of the covenant needed to be central in this new kingdom that God has established with him sitting over it as king. Now notice in the text here, there's the word again. 
the gathering of such a large crowd again. This may be an echo to chapter 5 in the beginning there where, where the tribes of Israel and their elders gathered to anoint David as king. And since his anointing, friends, this was the next most important event in the life of his new kingdom. And also notice that David was going to Bale Judah, which is the pagan name for Kiriath Jerim. See, this is the location. This is the place where the ark had been taken many years ago. And it was a place that had been forgotten by the people, so much so that the name of the place even was changed. Seventy years had passed. The ark had been residing in this place, an obscure place, almost forgotten, even though it was the place where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt. Now, what is the purpose of this Ark of God? The Ark of the Covenant was the centerpiece of the nation of Israel. It was a symbol of the throne of God, and as such, it was a symbol of God's presence among his people. And what David wanted to do was bring back the Ark of the Covenant this visible sign of God's presence, back to Jerusalem. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines, if you remember that, and it was taken by them into their land. And the reason it was taken is because the Israelites had seen the Ark of the Covenant, although it was a representation of the presence of God, they saw it as a rabbit's foot that would somehow bring them victory in battle. And God would teach them very quickly, you do not treat the Ark of the Covenant in that way. You don't treat me that way. And so they lost that battle. And on that day, when it was taken and they were defeated in battle, 1 Samuel 4.22 says this, the glory, talking about the Ark of the Covenant, has departed from Israel for the Ark of God has been captured. And the unfolding result of that, friends, was that the people of Israel began to look away from God as being their king, and they looked to the nations around them, and they, they cried out for a God or a king to rule them like the other nations. And so David is now acting to return the glory, this ark, back to Israel and back to Jerusalem in its rightful place, central among the people of God. Now secondly, notice the construction of the ark. The construction of the ark. The ark had been made according to God's instructions during the days of Moses. And just, I'm going to highlight a number of facts that you can find that are written in Exodus 25. It was a chest made of wood overlaid with gold on the inside and on the outside. It was approximately four foot by four foot by two foot, a rectangle box. Four rings were fashioned to the feet of the ark so that it could be carried by the Kohathite priests at a distance. Gold-plated poles were placed through those rings so it could be held on their shoulders as they carried it. And on top of the ark were two cherubim, angels, whose wings were stretched high. And no one was to touch it 
or look inside it except for the priests who had the right and the privilege to take care of the ark. And when it was being carried, it was to be kept, or when it was not being carried, it was to be kept in a sanctuary. Exodus 25, 8 says this, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And so this language of, of dwelling among the people describes the presence of the ark among God's people. Chapter 25 of Exodus and verse 22 says this, There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim. There are uh, on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So it was, it was at this place where God revealed himself, where he spoke. And the ark of the covenant was the symbol of God's presence among the people. Psalm 80, verse 1 says this, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You will lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Talking there about the Ark of the Covenant. And so this, this Ark was a, a beautiful construction, and it was given to Israel to be treated and to symbolize and to actualize the presence of God among his people. But it was a serious matter. So now we want to think about the significance of the ark. And the narrator in our text, in 2 Samuel 6, describes the ark this way. The ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now let's just think through what that means. The ark, first of all, bore God's name. Not only did it signify ownership, in other words, it belonged to God, it also signified relationship, that man could know God by name. Friends, just think of the significance of that, that God, sitting on his throne, creator of the universe, has condescended to his creation so that they can call him and know him by his name. It was where the people were to meet with God, where God would reveal himself. It also signifies his reputation. In other words, the name of God is his honor and his reputation. So first of all, the ark bore God's name. Secondly, uh, we, we find that this, this Lord of hosts language, the God of heavenly armies, is literally what's being talked about there, is emphasizing God's might, God's power. 2 Samuel 5.10 says this, David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. David defeated Goliath, for Samuel 17.45 says this, in the name of the Lord of hosts, the same Lord, this mighty God, is the God who is represented by this ark. And notice also, he sits enthroned. In other words, it represents his kingship. The idea seems to point to the fact that, that God sits enthroned in heaven and on earth. The ark of the covenant is his footstool. He is the king sitting on the throne who has chosen David to be his earthly king over his people. Years ago, when the tabernacle was erected, and later on when the, the temple 
was established. The Ark of the Covenant was to remain in a place called the Holy of Holies. But friends, here's the beauty of it. Now we no longer have an Ark of the Covenant. You see, we no longer need an Ark of a Covenant because the Bible says that if you are a believer, you are God's habitation. He dwells in you. He doesn't just dwell among you. He dwells in you. You see, whether it is this newly established kingdom under David or Gateway Bible Church gathered here in Castro Valley, it is God's plan, hear this, to meet with his people. He wants to be central in our worship. He wants to be central in our lives. He wants to be central in everything we do. So what David was doing is what we should be doing, prioritizing the centrality of God in our lives and in our worship. Now think about it. Is God central in your life and in your worship? Is he the driving force behind all you do? Or has he been sent away to an obscure and forgotten place? It's easy to become so familiar with religious Christianity and to neglect the centrality of God in our lives and worship. We see it all over the place. You can have a big and beautiful church with ornate architecture and stained glass windows and all kinds of religious artifacts. But when God looks down on that place and he sees it empty and he sees that God has departed, he he says about it, Ichabod, the glory has departed from this place. And you can have large churches numerically gathering on a Sunday morning with all kinds of activities going on, but God has been left out. He's been set aside. God-centered worship has been replaced by man-centered entertainment. God-centered instruction from the Word has been replaced by man-centered ideas about how to live. And when God looks down on that place, he says, Ichabod, the glory has departed. And friends, hear this. Being God-centered, gospel-centered, Christ-centered is critically important for the church. We must be sure that we are eagerly pursuing the realities in our own lives and in the church, that we are eager to submit to his revealed word no matter what, that we are standing on the fullness of the gospel rather than a watered-down ease of believism that doesn't deal with sin or God's wrath or our repentance, that we see Christ as the fullness of God in whom the deity dwells bodily, as Paul says in the book of Colossians. But sadly, even the concept of being God-centered, gospel-centered, and Christ-centered has now been relegated to a buzzword in our American Christianity. It is now trendy It's now in vogue, and everything has become Christ-centered. A new book comes out on the market, a Christ-centered book. You can no longer guarantee that what is contained in that book is actually Christ-centered. All you need to do is start a ministry for wherever you want to 
stick the label Christ-centered on it, and who can object? We have Christ-centered hats and Christ-centered T-shirts and Christ-centered coffee mugs and Christ-centered pens. We have Christ-centered ministries. You know, do you have a gun club? Just call it a Christ-centered gun club. Somehow, it's now holy. Do you have a dance class? Call it a Christ-centered dance class. Oh, that changes it all. It's Christ-centered. Do you have a, a Bible study? Just call it a Christ-centered Bible study, and everyone's going to come now, and they're not going to have to worry because we know it's Christ-centered. Somehow the words Christ-centered have become comfort words rather than true descriptions of the Christ who should be at the center. And friends, this is one of the problems with a lot of the, I'm going to say the Christian paraphernalia that we have. Christian t-shirts and things like that. You can wear something that says something, but have no idea what it means. Have no depth of understanding of what it's conveying and what God is truly like. So sadly, we have people who are running around wearing all the Christ-centered logos and paraphernalia who have no idea about the Christ, the God, and the gospel that is to be at the center of their lives. It's simply now a Christian fad, a hip new way of doing ministry. And friends, when that happens, it is a setup for disaster. Because the God, the gospel, and the Christ that are supposed to be at the center are replaced by the logo or buzzword which will ultimately eclipse the real thing. And that's always the fear. That's always the challenge. And it should go without saying, of course, that to be God-centered and, and gospel-centered and Christ-centered means that our lives and ministries and worship should be centered on God and the gospel and on Christ. But that isn't always the case, even though we may have a T-shirt that says that it is. As we'll see, for David, now have the Ark of the Covenant. And there was all the appearance of being God-centered in his worship. But disaster was around the corner. Friends, do you really know the God, the gospel, the Christ that you claim to be at the center of your life? Did David really know the God he was bringing back to Jerusalem on that day? The centrality of God's presence is followed by the joy of God's presence. What we read now is truly a joyous procession. I loved what Tim was sharing about this morning. I, I love the idea of saying it's, it's, you know, it's, it's okay to, to worship God with more than just your mouth. Now, obviously, there's going to be some restraints there. We don't want people jumping all over the place and hanging on the curtains and all that kind of stuff. There's, there's a decorum that is needed for the worship of God. But the, the reality is, with our whole being, we can worship him. And friends, there is a sense that this is what is going on in this passage. Just read verse 3 and following. Then they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Asa and Ohio the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. 
It was quite a procession up the hill to the house of Abinadab. And the two sons of Abinadab, Uzzah and Ahio, who had watched over the ark with their father during a significant part of those 70 years, drove the cart that the ark of God was on. And as the ark went, so the songs and the instruments and the celebration went up before the Lord. Verse 5, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating. This is no small word. This is a word that, that, that describes unrestrained celebration. They were praising God. Why? Because they had something to praise them about. They have a king. They have a land. They have a God. They are united together as a people. So 3,000 plus or 30,000 plus people lifting up their voices, numerous instruments, united in praying or praising and, and rejoicing over God's goodness to Israel. It was quite a celebration. And it was, it was done with vigor and joy in its fullest extent before the Lord. In other words, before the Ark of the Covenant, praising to God, but recognizing the presence of God with them. Like I said, they were surely celebrating what God had done so now, to be sure that they were complete, they wanted the ark of God to be brought back to Jerusalem to be sure of God's presence with them. They wanted to be that one people in one place under God's rule and in God's presence. Now, friends, they were rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. And in my experience, as I've asked large groups of people to list off aspects of God's character, his attributes that are most comforting to them. One of the first responses I, I typically get, usually within the first five responses, if not the first one, is I'm thankful for God's presence, his omnipresence, that he is always with me, that he'll never leave me nor forsake me. And to be sure, having the Lord near us is comforting it's assuring and gives us abounding hope. But friends, how do we tend to approach the worship of God? Now just think about this. Do we take seriously the gathering together with the body of Christ week after week to celebrate and to worship the God who saved us? Do we delight to sing songs that reflect on his greatness, his, his promises, his work on the cross, and our joy at becoming part of his church? Do we seek to praise God with musical instruments that God has gifted us with and come before him with psalms, hymns, and, and spiritual songs? How do, we attend, how do we tend to approach the presence of God? Do we rejoice in the fact that we now have free access through Christ, to come boldly to the throne of grace, as the book of Hebrews tells us? Does that move us? Does that impact us? Does it produce joy in us? Do we give? Do we sing? Do we fellowship? Do we listen to the word with the joy and the comfort that his presence with us at all times brings? When was the last time that you sang with 30,000 plus people 
walking for over 10 miles and singing praises to God. I haven't done that. The closest I have done was a couple of years ago at what was called a Together for the Gospel conference where over 8,000 pastors gathered. And we sang. And we sang these songs that are traditional songs. And at times we would start to sing, but I would be overwhelmed by the words. I would be overwhelmed by what I was hearing. You know, as Providence would have it this morning, I'm sitting down, I'm kind of brushing over my sermon, and my wife starts playing something on her iPhone. She didn't know it, but she was playing me on her iPhone because she was playing the recording of these 8,000 pastors plus singing at the Together for the Gospel conference. And I said, honey, this, I'm talking about this today. You're listening to me. And I remember, I remember singing some songs that were new, and I remember not being able to finish the stanza because I was weeping. I remember not being able to finish the stanza because my mouth and my heart was so caught up with what was being said. Now, friends, that doesn't just happen at a conference like that. That happened with me here this morning as we were singing together. Because we're worshiping God as a church. We're bringing praises to him because we want to celebrate the joy of what he's done and the joy of who we are in him and the joy of his presence. And so now as we look at the procession heading toward Jerusalem, we can honestly say everything seemed to be going on carefully, respectfully, and in a dignified manner, the celebration of worship before the Lord was truly genuine and joyful. But disaster was around the corner. The centrality of God's presence is followed by the joy of God's presence. But that is followed by the danger of God's presence. I'm sorry, I didn't put that up there. The danger of God's presence. What starts out as a day to celebrate the return of the ark to its central place in Israel will sadly end in death, anger, resentment, fear, and desperation. David's eager enthusiasm to restore God's active presence in the form of the ark of God will be eclipsed by his perilous disregard for God's word and God's holiness. And we want to first of all think about this man Uzzah and his death. Let's begin at verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now let's get this picture straight. Uzzah and Ahio the sons of Abinadab, having had the charge of the ark of God in their father's house, are now in charge of driving the cart that held the ark to Jerusalem where it would be restored to its rightful place in the center of God's people. With Ahio in the front leading the way and Uzzah driving the oxen, they came to this threshing floor 
And there was just this, this little stumble, the little bump in the road. And Asa, out of concern that the ark would fall off uh, the, the cart, does what any normal person would do. He just automatically reaches out, sticks out his hand to stop the ark from falling and potentially being damaged. It was a minor incident that took place. It was a slight stumble followed by an attentive reaction by Asa. No harm really was done. In fact, you probably wouldn't even notice it was happening. But when Uzzah touches the ark, God is so angry with Uzzah that he strikes him dead. The procession stops. The music stops. And what was a joyous celebration became a trembling silence. Beside the ark lay the body of Uzzah. Someone call 911. The party is over. Now, friends, that seems as if the punishment was exceedingly disproportionate to the offense. Wasn't Uzzah simply trying to protect the ark? Wasn't he trying to help God? Isn't it right to have so much respect for the things of God that you want to protect them from getting damaged? Should have just stood back and done nothing? Wouldn't that have been worse? I appreciate Dale Davis's words on this text. Here's what he says. For me, passages like this are evidence of the supernatural origin and trustworthiness of the Bible. This Uzzah story goes so against the grain of human preferences. We would never have invented a God like this. Not if we want to win converts and influence people. This God is not very marketable. Anyone who says the God of the Bible is merely a projection of our wish fulfillment has not read the Bible. So there's a couple of questions we need to answer here. Who is to blame for us as death? Who is to blame for Uzzah's death? Well, the first answer to that question is Uzzah himself. He was responsible for his own actions. God had been very specific about how the Ark of the Covenant should be treated, and in particular, how it should be moved from place to place. Only the priests could touch the Ark or the things that belong to the Ark. The Ark could only be carried by Levites, and in particular, Levites that were the sons of the Kohathites. Uzzah was not a priest or a Levite and should have no occasion touched the ark. He was responsible for his actions and so died doing what Scripture directly told him he should not do. And, of course, who's the author of Scripture? God is. But then David and all Israel were also responsible for his death. The very fact that Uzzah had to put out his hand was due to the neglect and disobedience of both David and the people of Israel who should have known better. God had given clear and plain instructions as to how the ark should be transported. First of all, if it was going to be transported, it needed to be covered. 
Secondly, it was to be carried by the Kohathites, the Levites, who had placed the wooden poles through the rings and then carried the ark on their shoulders. So the fact that the ark was not being carried in the prescribed manner that the Lord commanded was the piece of neglectful disobedience in itself that made way for Uzzah to be in the predicament that we was in, that he would simply reach out his hand to stop it from falling because it was being carried on this cart. So not only was Uzzah responsible, but so was David and all the Israelites who should have known better, or at least should have consulted God's word to determine what God had said on the matter. I'm going to take you back a little bit into 1 Samuel. One of the responsibilities of a king, do you remember, was to read the law. He himself was to read the law. He was to know the law. And if David had been reading the law, he would have known the law, and he would have been obedient to the law. So why were there not... Why were they not following God's commandments? What had influenced them away from doing what God clearly commanded them to do? Who had started to carry the Ark of the Covenant on a cart anyway? Well, the answer to the question is the Philistines. Yep, those pesky Philistines. Even when they're gone, they're still present. If you remember, when Israel lost the Ark of God... Because they had treated it like a rabbit's foot, the Philistines took it. And, and when the Philistines took it, what happened in their territory is that wherever the ark went, people got sick and they broke out with these, uh, with these tumors. And, and so the, the cities would say, take it away from us, take it away from us. And they would take the ark and they would dump it into another city. And it was kind of God's way of judging all of the Philistines by his providence. Oh, look, we got this great prize. And it's like, oh, no, what have we done? And so... After some time, they said, the best thing for us to do is to give it back to the Israelites. And so in the plan of giving it back to the Israelites, they, they uh, crafted a new cart and placed the Ark of the Covenant on that cart and sent it with some oxen toward the Israelite territory. I mean, literally, it's like, all right, oxen, swat, and there they are to walk down this road because we don't want anything more to do with this. And on the other end, the Israelites received it. And, of course, we also know on that day that there were some men there of Beth Shemesh who came to get the ark, and 70 of them were struck dead because they looked upon, or literally into the ark, which they were not supposed to do. And so the ark was eventually taken by the men of kirith and put in the care of Abinadab. So what Uzzah and Ahio had done was to continue the practice that the Philistines had started when they built the cart for the Ark of God. But that was never God's plan. That was never God's design. That was never how God intended his worship to be carried out. What the Israelites had done and what David was now doing in bringing the Ark of God on a cart was to borrow the thinking and practice of a pagan culture as an aid, as a help to do what God had already commanded them to do. It's very possible that the care of the ark had been neglected because the practice of the Philistines simply made sense to the thinking of man. And friends, isn't this the struggle that the church is always in? 
Do we allow the wisdom of this world to whittle away at the clear commandments of God? For example, God says to preach the word. But the culture says, stop being so preachy. Stop telling me what I can and cannot do. Stop judging me with the Bible. If there is a God, he or she will be a a God who loves all people just the way they are. So rather than preach the word, as God commands, the church often begins to adopt new and acceptable methods to attempt to reach the people. So now they give talks on how to be the better you God wants you to be, or 10 steps to be a better husband or a better wife, or how to find success in the chaos of life, or how I died, went to heaven, and came back. And these talks may use the Bible, but the principles are simply the world's psychology or jaded experiences laced with scriptural proof texts. And when Christian leaders are confronted from God's word about the fact that their thinking and practices are not from God, but are from the influence of a pagan society, don't they tend to cry foul? Don't they tend to to get angry and upset with the messenger? Don't they start to throw out accusations like legalist and traditionalist and narrow-minded? They don't just do that to... Christian leaders, they do that to you when you point out the problems that are clearly in their presence. And people react to the clear instruction from God's word by saying things like, God isn't some legalist sitting up in heaven looking to rain on my parade. No, God loves me just the way I am. He wants to bless me and fill my life with purpose. God doesn't care how I worship him as long as I'm sincere in that worship. I want to market a new bracelet. W-W-U-D. What would Uzzah do with that statement? I'm sure that if you could ask Uzzah why he touched the ark, he would tell you that he sincerely didn't want it to fall off the cart. But it doesn't matter how sincere you are. If you violate one of God's commandments, you're toast. You cannot play around with God's holiness and think that it doesn't matter to God. And especially when it comes to worship, We cannot afford to be casual or cavalier about God and his holy character. I read this week a story about two men who were walking together to a reception. It was a a rainy day in Washington, D.C. And one man had offered to share his umbrella with another man, and they were both going to the same event. And as they, they sloshed along in the water... They began to talk, and the stranger declared his opinion that Governor Grant was highly overrated. And naturally, he would have said, he wouldn't have said that had he known that Grant was holding the umbrella over him. He acted foolishly because he did not know with whom he was dealing. And the problem is that many 
of those who have come to worship God have no idea who this God is that they say they are worshiping. I remember Albert Moeller, who's the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, talking about his time at the Shepherds Conference, which takes place at Grace Community Church, where John MacArthur is pastor. Dr. Moeller was one of the keynote speakers, and he, he had been for a number of years, and so um, he was pretty well known. And early on during that conference, he was walking through the, the throngs of pastors that were kind of excitedly there for the conference, and he was stopped by two men who were from out of town, pastors who were attending there for the first time, and they asked him, hey, would you mind if, if we took a picture? And trying to be gracious, he responded, of course, that'll be fine. And so he made sure his tie was straight and his shirt was tucked in properly. And then they handed him the camera and both stood with the church in the background and smiled, ready to have their picture taken by him. They had no idea who he was. And, and he shared that story because he was warmed by it. <laughs> he was humbled by it. So many times we interact with a God that we really do not know and we do not understand. When we're talking about God, we cannot make the same mistake, friends. He has revealed himself to us through his word. He's revealed his will about how we are to live our lives for his glory, about how we're to, to gather to worship him. Friends, who is to blame for Uzzah's death? Uzzah, David. Who is to blame for the fact that we sin? We are. Certainly others participate in that if they are withholding truth. Friends, this is a serious matter. Now, why is it so severe? We're told here the anger of the Lord was directed against Uzzah. I mean, he is angry here. It's all this great celebration being offered to God for all that he's done. God, how can you be so angry? To the casual reader, this all seems a little over the top, doesn't it? What kind of God would kill a man for touching a wooden box? What kind of God would allow such a tragedy to take place? Well, the short answer is the holy God of Israel. The long answer is this. The God who created the earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars. The God who formed man out of the dust of the ground and woman out of the man's rib. The God, when Adam and Eve disobeyed and were cast out of the Garden of Eden, still wanted to commune with men and so instituted a reconciliation through an animal sacrifice. The God who brought Adam out of the, or Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees and promised that through him a great nation would come. The God who, when the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt, sent plagues in the land so that Pharaoh would let his people go. The God who brought Israel through the wilderness into the promised land. The God who sent deliverer after deliverer when his people wandered away from his commands by taking wives of foreign people and worshiping their gods and eventually became oppressed by those very same people. He sent deliverers to, to free them from their bondage. The, the God who gave them a king when they demanded it. The God who now 
has sent them his king in the person of David. That's who. The same God is a holy God who, when he speaks, means every word he says. He's the same God who, when the ark was taken by the Philistines and placed in the temple of their god, Dagon, caused Dagon to fall down before his presence. The same God who caused the tumors to grow among the Philistines. The same God who caused 70 men of Beth Shemesh to die because they dared to look into the ark of God. So on that day when the surviving men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Yes, God is gracious. He is is kind. He is merciful. And he brought Israel out of hopelessness to a place where his king sits on the throne of a united kingdom. But God is also a holy God whose justice and wrath are a part of his majestic character. Uzzah's death would be an important, instructive lesson to the whole nation of Israel that God is holy and not to be trifled with. It would be a standing proof that God is greatly to be feared and to be held in reverence by all who stand in his presence. Now, how does David respond to all this? See, one person's reaction to Uzzah's death is really critically important to the narrator here. And notice three ways David responds to God's anger. First of all, there is David's anger. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah at that place. It's called Perez Uzzah to this day. Now notice, David is not angry at God. He is angry because of what the Lord had done. David hated what had happened. But this doesn't mean that he hated God. He hated the fact that God had been offended and that the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And there's an echo here of what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 20 where the Lord burst through or broke out against his enemies, the Philistines. He named that place Baal-perazim, the Lord of bursting through. You see, it was one thing for God to break out against his enemies. It's another thing, and it's more troubling for David that God would break out against one of his own people. That is why he called the place Perez-Uzzah or bursting out against Uzzah so that future generations would never forget what happened on that day. So David responds in anger. He also responds in fear. It was similar to the response of the men of Beth Shemesh who said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? They said in verse 9, and David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? David had experienced wonderful protection over the years from the Lord. He had known unusual intimacy with him. Just read the Psalms. You'll see that. 
But now he had come to terms with the fact that he had overstepped the bounds. He had presumed upon his relationship with God by failing to observe the regulations laid down to safeguard respect for God's holiness. God's gracious and comforting presence did not negate his holy character. And the same is true with us today. Through Jesus, we can become, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Through Jesus, we are brought into the family of God. Through Jesus, we're able to call God by his intimate title, Abba, calling him Daddy. But such beautiful intimacy does not negate or change his holy character. And friends, this is, this is the balance that we need to have. That reality is brought to bear in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and us to pray. You know how it goes. Our Father in heaven. That's intimate language. That's family language. What's the next line? Hallowed be your name. Intimacy with God. Holiness because he is God. Both are part of this beautiful character of God. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we must learn to keep the balance between the intimate privilege of knowing God and the holy reverence he is due. He is our intimate father. He is also our holy God. And we may rest in the affections of a loving father, but we also tremble with respect at his holiness. And we don't need to be terrified of him, but being a little scared wouldn't hurt. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the fountain or foundation of human life. Specifically, the king of Israel was to be one who must learn the fear of the Lord, 1 Samuel 12, 14. The prophet Isaiah promised that a new king, a descendant of David, whose delight would be in the fear of the Lord. Of course, that's talking about Jesus. And all Christians are called to walk in the fear of the Lord. And as Christians, among many instructions, we're called to love the Lord, to trust the Lord, to obey the Lord, and to fear the Lord. The, the, the many-faceted God with a majestic character, he is our lifelong pursuit. Friend, do you know him? Oh, well, not just his grace and his kindness, but his holiness, his justice. So not only was he angry and fearful, there was also separation. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, at face value, this might seem like David is being disobedient, but I don't take it that way. After all the things that happened that day, we, we, I think this is actually a very prudent move on his part for a couple of reasons. First of all, the entry into Jerusalem had been a failure. What started out as a celebration ended up being a funeral. 
the mood had turned somber, and this day was not the day to celebrate the return of the Ark of God. Secondly, it's possible that David placing the Ark at Obed-Edom's house served to give David time. Well, what kind of time? To reflect on the reason for the tragic events of the day? To discover how and why the Lord was so angry with Uzzah? Time to read the law, to discover other commandments that had been, been neglected? And what we see next in the story is really a glimmer of hope, isn't it? Verse 11. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now, we're not told specifically how the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. I mean, did he provide them with Mercedes-Benz and lots of camels and things like that? We don't know. But the association is the presence of God was there. And with the presence of God was the blessing of God. What did that look like? And that could be peace. That could be fellowship. That could be joy. could be all sorts of different things. But what we do know is that there is an answer to David's earlier question. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? How can the ark of the Lord come to me? God's holiness doesn't mean that we cannot have access to him. It just means that there is an access defined by him on his terms. It's an access that was accomplished when Jesus died on the cross. At that moment, the veil of the temple was torn in two, thus allowing all who are Christ's to come boldly to the throne of grace, to have direct access to the Father. So when you pray, you pray directly to the Father through Jesus Christ. You don't go through a priest, you go through Christ. You go directly to the throne of grace. And friends, I want to conclude this, this morning by taking us to a psalm that very likely may have been written reflecting this time. And I want us to think about what is being said here and, and just allow what is being said here just to, to paint a picture and to encourage you that, that our focus, our attention, our worship, our desire is that Jesus Christ, the King of glory, is in our midst. Psalm 24, Psalm 24 says this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all, and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God or the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. And lift them up, O ancient doors. The king 
or that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Lord, here we are this morning. A couple of thousand years away from your entry into Jerusalem. Another thousand years away from David's attempt to bring the ark into Jerusalem. And Lord, we can still today look to you. Celebrate who you are. Celebrate what you have done. See that you are this king. You're the only one that could stand pure and holy. You're the only one that can represent us completely. You are the one, Lord, who cleanses us. You are the one who restores us. Lord, we cannot stand in your presence except through you, through what you have done, through what you've accomplished by reconciling us to yourself, to the Godhead, by your sacrifice on the cross. We are in awe that a holy creator would be willing to condescend and be called by us, Father. But Lord, may we also be in awe of the reality that you as this creator God are also holy. But Lord, even those things being true, you have made a way for us to be in fellowship with you, to meet with you, to, to sup with you, to feed on your truth, to be strengthened and guided by you. We are undeserving, but we are your people, and we are thankful, and we give you praise. And we ask, Lord, that as a result of our time this morning, that we would take a hard look at our hearts, that we would not presume, we would not be casual or cavalier, but we would recognize you as our great God and Savior, worthy to be worshipped in your holiness, by your will, by your word, for your glory. In your precious holy name, we ask these things. Amen.